Namaskaram. Today I'm going to be talking about the 19th paragraph of Nana. What Bhagavan says in the, this 19th paragraph, he begins by saying, Nalamanam Endrum, uh, Ketamanam Endrum, Irendu Manangal Ilde. That means there are not two minds, namely a good mind and a bad mind. When he says not two minds in this context, he means not there are not two kinds of minds, namely a good mind and a bad mind. Uh, manam Andre, mind is only one. <clears throat> Vasane Gale, subum endrum, a subum endrum, irenduvidum. Only Vasanas are of two kinds, namely subha and a subha. Subha means agreeable, virtuous, or good. A subha means disagreeable, wicked, harmful, or bad. So, uh, um, but it, it's not that there are different kinds of minds, there are different kinds of vasanas. Um, the, these subha vasanas and asubha vasanas, both are, are, are vishaya vasanas. They're both outward-going inclinations. But some some of the outward going inclinations are relatively uh, good inclinations, agreeable inclination, kindness, generosity, consideration, and so on. If one has such inclinations, one seems to be a good person. If one has uh, if one has um, selfish, greedy, unkind. Uh, heartless type of inclinations, then one appears to be a, an unkind, heartless person. Uh, <clears throat> um, that, sorry, I'm just explaining it. That then in the next sentence, he says, Manum subhavasanai vayatai nikkampodu nalamanamendrum, a subhavasanai vayatai nikkampodu ketamanamendrum solapadam. That means when the mind is under the sway of subhavasanas, it is said to be a good mind. And when it is under the sway of asubhavasanas, a bad mind. In other words, we, we see so many people in this world. Some people we consider to be good people. Some people we consider to be bad people. Some people we uh, find agreeable. Some people we find disagreeable. This is, it's all the difference lies, not in the mind itself it lies in the basanas but under whose sway uh, the mind is is current i mean but the, the, the basanas that are currently swaying the mind so um this is a very nice point bhagavan is making here because generally we we judge people and say oh this is a good person this is a bad person but, but what bhagavan implies here is essentially we are all the same but difference lies only in the vasanas which we allow to sway our mind and when he says the, when the mind's under the sway of good of supervasanas or the mind's under the sway of uh, a supervasanas that is, he often talks about the mind being under the sway of vasanas. But vasanas are just inclinations. So just because we have certain a type of vasanas doesn't mean that we are bound to act in accordance with our vasanas. We can allow ourselves to be swayed by our vasanas or, or not swayed by them. We all have, as Bhagavan says in earlier in the... Um, in the 10th paragraph, he says, though um, uh, 
Vishaya Vasanas that come from time in a memorial, rising countless numbers like ocean waves. Um, so there are, the Vasanas in our mind are innumerable. And those Vasanas, as we all know, Vasanas are often pulling us in quite opposite directions. We may have a, an inclination um, to do a certain thing, and we may also have an inclination not to do that thing or to do the opposite thing. So the, where our freedom lies is that we are free to choose whether to be swayed by a particular vasana or not. So supposing, for example, we, um, we see a hungry person sitting by the side of a road begging for food. And if we happen to have food or money with us, when that person asks us, if we're under the sway of subhavasanas, we'll naturally give that person. If we're under the sway of subhavasanas, we won't give that person. Oh, we, but there may be an internal struggle. I, we may think, okay, I've got some money. I could give this person so that they can buy some food and eat, but I need this money for myself. Don't, don't I? So there may be a struggle within ourselves whether to, uh, whether to give or not to give. So, but our freedom, where our freedom lies, where true freedom of will lies, is that we are free to choose which vasanas we allow ourselves to be swayed by. So we can either allow ourselves to be swayed by the inclination to give money to that poor person or the inclination not to give it and to keep it for ourselves. So, so that's just one example. That's the same, that's the case with so many things. For example, we may be eating a taste, a very tasty meal, uh, and we've had enough, but we may feel inclined to eat a bit more. But at the same time, we may feel, if I eat more, it's not going to be good for me because it's not good to overeat. So I should I should avoid eating more. But the temptation to eat more will be there because it's such tasty food. So we have a choice whether we give in to the inclination to uh, eat more or give in to the inclination not to eat more. So like this, throughout the, throughout our life, moment to moment, we are constantly vasanas are pulling us in all sorts of directions and we are the ones I and mean, we have the freedom to choose which vasanas we allow ourselves to be swayed by the more we allow ourselves to be swayed by a particular kind of vasana the stronger that vasana will become so if we want to cultivate super vasanas for example we can whenever the the Whenever a subhavasana arises, if we allow ourselves to be swayed by that, that subhavasana will become stronger and the, uh, the contrary, a subhavasana will become weaker. So it, we, we, this is why we are all ultimately responsible for our behavior, because we have this freedom to allow ourselves to be swayed by particular vasanas or not to be swayed by them, or to choose between contrary vasanas that are pulling us in different directions. So this is how the mind is purified. By, by That is, in the early stages, it's desirable to cultivate subhavasanas. It's better to be a good person than to be a bad person. Um, but that's not going very deep in the spiritual path. When we go deeper in the spiritual path, we... We, our aim is to go beyond all vasanas, not to be swayed by any vasana 
other than satvasana. Because as I say, supervasanas and asubhavasanas are both different kinds of different qualities of vishayabhasanas. Uh, vishayabhasanas means inclinations to seek happiness in vishayas. Vishayas means objects or phenomena. In other words, anything other than ourselves. So the outward going inclinations of our mind are called uh, are called um, uh, 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 vishayabhasanas. The opposite of vishayabhasanas uh, is satvasana. Satvasana, sat means being. So the inclination just to be as we are, the inclination to hold on to our being, to hold on to I am, and not to allow our mind to go outward, that is called satvasana. So when we are following Bhagavan's path of self-investigation and self-surrender, our aim is not just to cultivate subhavasanas and to not cultivate and to give up subhavasanas. Our aim is to cultivate satvasana. The more we cultivate satvasana, the more the remaining vishayavasanas will tend to be subha. That is, the, the more our mind is purified by going within and by surrendering ourselves, the more, the less we will be inclined, the less the 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 a I mean, the supervasanas will automatically decrease. Um, but our aim is not just to cultivate the supervasanas. Our aim is to cultivate the satvasana. So, mm -hmm. satvasana is of, of one kind. There's only one satvasana, the inclination to turn within. The inclination to turn outward, the vishayavasanas, are of two kinds, subha or asubha. And, of course, these are relative terms. Some some, uh, some vasanas, they're slightly subha, some are slightly asubha, some are very subha, some are very asubha. So, it's all a matter of, these are all relative terms. There's, it's, not, it's not a simple black and white, either it's subha or asubha, very different degrees of, uh, of, um, of, of goodness or badness, we can say. Michael? Yes? On this very point, you're giving a, a, a good amount of time to it. Yes. I'm curious to know the answer to the question, is there ever a point in time when the mind does not fall sway to vasanas? No. Not that we're always under the sway of them. We're always under the sway of vasanas. Even when we're turning our attention within, we're under the sway of vasanas, but we're not under the sway of the vishaya vasanas, we're under the sway of the sat vasana. That is ultimately the only... Perfectly good vasana is is the sat vasana because the sat vasana is the inclination to subside back into our being to surrender ourselves to our real nature and, the and to remain as we actually are. The vishaya ones are to turn voluntarily turn your attention on the better attributes of life to use that as a vasana that may influence your your inclination. Yes, but it. As I say, it's better to be a good person than to be a bad person, obviously. So it's better to have supervasanas rather than a supervasanas. But even the supervasanas are still vishayabhasanas. So we are replacing our, our iron chains with golden chains. It's still a bondage. If you're attached to being a good person, you're still attached to being a person. But our aim is to go beyond being a person, to surrender ourselves completely. But if we if we are following this spiritual path, trying to cultivate this satvasana, 
and thereby weaken all the Vishayabhasanas, the, the residual Vishayabhasanas will naturally tend to be subha rather than asubha. So by a byproduct of following this path is we do generally become a better person. That is, the more our mind is purified, the more we naturally feel um, uh, compassion for others. When we see others suffering, we suffer to see them suffering. So we want to help others. So we, we, we automatically become a better person by following this path. But the aim of following this path is not to become a better person. The aim of following this path is to uh, eradicate ego, the false awareness, I am this person. Is that clear? Yes, it is. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. So this this subject of vasanas, it's it's very important to understand the nature of vasanas, how the vasanas uh, influence our mind, and how, most importantly of all, the freedom that we have when we pe when people talk about free will. So, that is, philosophers and others they discuss so much about free will, but without understanding how the will works. What do we even mean by free will? Generally, when people talk about free will, they mean the freedom to do whatever you want. But that is not free will. That is freedom of action. Freedom of will is freedom to, to, to allow yourself to be swayed by this person or that person. That's where our freedom lies. Now, from... In the past, we have cultivated so many vasanas. So the vasanas we have now, they come from the past. So we, 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 can't, we can't instantly change the vasanas we have now, but we can gradually change them by, by allowing ourselves to be swayed by the better vasanas and, and avoid being swayed by the, uh, worse, the, the less good vasanas, we naturally become a better person. But the best vasana to allow ourselves to be swayed by is the sat vasana. The more we allow ourselves to be swayed by the sat vasana, by holding on to our being, the more the vishaya vasanas are thereby weakened. Because vasanas are just inclination. They have no strength of their own. Whatever strength the vasanas seem to have is the strength that we give them. And how we give strength to vasanas is by allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. So if we have a, for, for example, some people smoke. The more they smoke, the stronger that inclination to smoke may, uh, will become. They may... They may know smoking is not good for their health. They may try to avoid uh, uh, smoking, but still, because they cultivated that uh, vasana in the past, it's so strong, it's difficult for them to overcome. But they're always free to overcome it if they, if they want to. If they, if they decide, okay, I'm, from today onwards, I'm not going to be swayed by this vasana to smoke. If I'm going to give up this inclination to smoke, the more, the more they resist that inclination, the weaker the inclination will become. And after some time, that habit of smoking will drop off completely. And after some years, they'll feel an aversion to the very idea of smoking. They'll think, how was I ever able to do this, to, to um, take the smoke into my lungs and ruin my health in this way? So that is, so people who give up smoking, they give up smoking by, by using their freedom of will not to be swayed by those vasanas. 
that that particular vasana to smoke. The more they uh, 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 refrain from being swayed by that vasana, the weaker it becomes. So this is the case with all vasanas. So if we, if we if we are aware that we have some bad trait in us, we can change that. Not instantly. We can't instantly give up that vasana, but by a, by refraining from being swayed by that vasana, slowly the vasana will become weaker and weaker and will eventually drop off. This is where the freedom of will lies. That, so th this is the true meaning of free will. But rather than saying free will, it's a, it, this term free will is so used nowadays without people clearly defining what they mean by free will. And generally when people talk about freedom of will, they're, uh, free will, they're talking about freedom of action rather than freedom of will itself because they, they don't understand the nature of the will. They don't understand how the will works. To, to be Most people are not at all aware of vasanas. They're aware of likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. But the vasanas of those likes, dislikes, desires, and attachment in their subtle seed form. So the more we follow this path, the more we go within, the more clearly we become aware of the nature of vasanas and the workings of the vasanas. Another question about that, if it's okay? Yes, yes, certainly. When I became aware of vasanas in general, I mean, years and years ago, I heard the term. Yeah. I understood yeah. the term. I kind of just blew it off. Okay, well, that is. Yeah. yeah. Now, in terms of Ramana's entering my life with his suggestion of looking inward and finding the vasanas, I was under the impression more than rather choosing free will to work on reorienting or directing yourself away from, let's say, the bad vasanas to a healthy vasana, I was under the impression that by focusing on what I would call the bad vasanas, you bring it up to the light so that it has a chance of just evaporating and disappearing. I take it that's not quite true. No, it's not. That is, our aim is not to focus on vasanas. Our aim is to focus on ourselves. By focusing on, we, when we focus on ourselves, we are being swayed by that satvasana. By so, but uh, we, we are not. We we sh that is we we come to know. We come to understand the workings of vasanas to the extent to which we turn within. But our aim is not to understand the working of vasanas. That's a byproduct. Uh, we have one aim and one aim alone: to know who am I to know what we actually are. In the course of this path of turning within, we, all, we automatically come to understand about Vasan because we automatically become aware of how, we, how strong our inclinations to go outwards, to think of anything other than ourselves, how strong those inclinations are. So coming to understand the nature of Vasanas is a byproduct of following this path. But understanding that is very helpful because then we understand what the real problem we're up against. People say, oh, this self-inquiry self is very difficult. 
But Bhagavan says it's very easy. So why do why does it seem so difficult to us? It seems so difficult to us because we have so such strong inclination to go outwards. So the reason it seems difficult is because we don't want to do it. We don't want to turn within. Turning within entails surrendering ourselves, and we entails letting go of everything else. But because we have we we, we strongly believe that happiness. But our happiness depends on external things. We believe we derive happiness from external things. We believe external things are the cause of our happiness and our unhappiness. So we try to experience those things that will make us happy and to avoid those things that will that will make us unhappy. So, um, uh, so so long as our our that we have that mistaken judgment but happiness comes from external things the vasanas will be strong and those vasanas will those vasanas he means the vishaya vasanas will be strong and they will make us reluctant to turn within and attend to ourselves attending to ourselves is actually the easiest of all things it seems difficult because of our lack of willingness because we lack of willingness means we have our inclination to attend to other things is much stronger than our inclination to attend to ourselves so how can we cultivate a stronger inclination to attend to ourselves only by patient and persistent practice so the more we practice the more the satvasana is strengthened and the vishaya vasanas are correspondingly weakened the vishaya vasanas are uh that that's when the vishaya vasanas are strong they're like a dense cloud that dense cloud uh uh covers over our natural inner clarity because of the because our mind is clouded by vasanas we therefore have a wrong judgment thinking that happiness lies ex- in external things the more we turn within the more our mind is thereby purified and clarified the more the, the this dense cloud of vishaya vasanas is uh, thinned out dissipated and so the clarity shines more and more in our mind and so we come to know more and more clearly but happiness doesn't lie in external things it lies only within ourselves the more we understand the more we can clearly see that the strong the more inclination will have to go within and the less inclination will have to go outwards so all these things are very closely connected that is bhagavan talks in um in the 11th paragraph about oh yeah no not in the 11th paragraph in the 14th paragraph he talks about avivaka lack of vivaka uh we seek happiness we we believe happiness lies in external things because of lack of vivaka because of avivaka the avivaka is there because our mind is clouded by the vishaya vasanas so by this practice of self investigation we strengthen the sat vasana weaken the vishaya vasanas and by weakening the vishaya vasanas we are dissipating that cloud that is but is clouding our judgment and so we come to see more and more clearly but happiness doesn't lie actually outside it lies only within ourselves so the, the the love to go within becomes stronger and stronger
So all these things are very beautifully tied together. But the more we, the more we follow this path, the more deeper we go. The deeper we go within, the the clearer all these things will become. So knowing about vastness is not our aim, but we we naturally come to to recognize vastness and to recognize the workings of vastness by trying to go within. Because the vastness of the obstacles we're up against, um, and by the more we understand the workings of vastness, the, the the more we recognize the freedom that we have to not be swayed by them. So we can be hold on to self attentive and not be swayed by all the bishaya vastness that are uh, tending to draw our mind outwards, inclining our mind to go outwards. Is that clear? It is for me. It's also quite important. Um, it, I haven't I think it's of, very, very important. <laughs> I haven't thought of asanas quite the way you explained them at all. I mean, yeah. a lot of what you just told me is new to me. Yeah. But just vasanas in general, and I'll get to Lee in a second. She has a question. I look back at vasanas in general as I've become aware of them, as I've learned to recognize them and to yes. profit from being able to be aware of them. I see it as maybe not the single greatest change in my spiritual direction, having come to Ramana, but certainly one of them. I mean, it's, 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 it's very, very important. Yes. And it's and hard it, for me to explain that to others uh, when the subject yeah. comes up, because I don't think they quite know what I'm talking about. It's yeah. because I don't explain it. Yeah, but, I don't but, because all these things come, that is to understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly and deeply, practice is absolutely essential. Because otherwise, if you, supposing you you try to know about some foreign country just by reading maps, the the map will tell you something. You get a vague impression of what that country is like, but the map will become meaningful to you. To be, if you go to that country and go to all those places that are marked on the map, then the map becomes so much more meaningful to you. Bhagavan's teachings are like that map. To truly yeah. understand what the map is talking about, we need to go to that country. In other words, we need to put Bhagavan's teachings into practice. Then only will we understand all these things. This is why when we first read Bhagavan's teachings, we understand something. But as we go, as we go, as we follow this path more and more, Bhagavan's teachings become more and more meaningful to us. We 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 understand more and more deeply what Bhagavan is talking about, why he talks about vasanas, why he talks about the mind being under the sway of vasanas, how important this is, and what actually it means in practice when he said the mind under the sway of vasanas, what that actually means in practice. We can understand only to the extent to which we go within and try to hold on to self-attentiveness. Great, great. Thank you. Leah, go ahead. Thank you, Ted, and um, thank you, Michael. Um, in order to understand if I'm under the influence of a Vashaya Vasana, um, is emotion being uh, it happy, sad, anger, resentful, um, excited, anxious, any array of emotion, is that indicator that I'm being grabbed by uh, the Shea Vasana and I'm not in Sat Vasana? That is all these things, emotions, 
um, that all the, the, the meaning of the word bishaya is an object of phenomena. So all these things, all these emotions, feelings, uh, and so on, these are all vishayas. The reason we are experiencing vishayas is because of our inclination to experience them. The inclination to experience them is called vishaya vasanas. So the whole world is nothing but vishayas. All the objects of the world are vishayas. All the, all the thoughts, feelings, memories in, in our own mind, they're all vishayas. So the, the inclination to experience anything other than ourselves is a vishaya. And if we are experiencing anything other than ourselves, other than our own being, our mind is, we are experiencing it because we're under the, the sway of vishaya vasanas. So okay, we, understood. We are, so we are everything. constant everything, everything. Yes, yeah. Bhagavan said when when you you know Bhagavan sometimes Bhagavan often said this world is a dream, and when he explained how the mind projects the world, he sometimes used the cinema analogy, and when he used the cinema analogy, he said the film in the the goes through the projector that is the vasanas. So it's the images on the film but are projected on the screen as the pictures so the, the everything that we experience the whole world and all and our mind all are a projection of our vishaya vasanas we experience these things because we're inclined to experience them so it's our inclination to experience these things that causes us to experience these things Vishayas have no reality of their own. They're nothing but sprouted forms of our Vishaya Vasanas, projections of our Vishaya Vasanas. There's a slang term that makes me think of Vasanas, mm. and it's probably more derogatory than not, and that is baggage. I carry my baggage with me. That implies that it's all bad, that it's all negative, that it influences me in the wrong ways. Yeah, but yeah. Look at well, that in it, a positive it, it, light. Yeah, I think often when people say, oh, oh um, this person comes with a lot of baggage, we are yeah. referring to the vasanas. Yes, that helps a yeah. lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people, generally when people talk about baggage, they mean he's got lots of, um, he's got lots of past res resentments and bitter experiences and everything. These are the grosser forms of it, but the seeds that give rise to all those um, those resentments and those desires and attachments and all these things are vasanas. So vasanas are, are the likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, um, all forms of volition in their seed form, their subtlest form. I think you should continue. Okay, right, 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 right. But uh, it's good that we discussed this because this is a very, very important uh, topic. I mean, that's not the main thing Bowman is talking about here, but this is just one place in which he's talking about the mind being under the sway of Barsana. So to understand what he means by that is very important. And also to understand that we are... Though we may have certain vasanas, we are never bound by our vasanas. We're always free either to be swayed by them or not to be swayed by them. But we have that freedom. 
to choose whether we are going to allow ourselves to be swayed by a vasana or not. Often people say, oh, my vasanas are so strong, I couldn't resist it. The reason we cannot resist the vasanas is because we, we, we don't want to resist. We, the vasanas are our likings in their seed form. So why we allow ourselves to be swayed by our vasanas is because we like to be swayed by them. So um, we, we, the vasanas will be, uh, seem to be strong so long as we, uh, I mean, so uh, it's difficult to say. So long as the vasanas are strong, we have a strong liking for that, and so we will be, we tend to be carried away by them. So, in order to weaken all our vishaya vasanas and strengthen the sat vasana, requires a lot of hard work. Hard work means trying persistently to hold on to self-attentiveness. That is the only way to weaken the Vishaya Vasanas and strengthen the Sat Vasana. And without weakening the Vishaya Vasanas and strengthening the Sat Vasana, there's no way we can make progress in this path. I'd like to ask a question about this, and I'd like other people to chime in if they're yeah. so willing to do so. That last point, it's hard work. It is very hard work, and especially became hard work for me when I first became aware that that's what Ramana is talking to with self-inquiry, probably yeah. more than anything else, to reflect on, to recognize those vasanas, those tendencies that don't serve you. There are some that do serve you, but the ones that don't serve me are the ones I need to address full forthrightly. So my question is, it's actually, I guess, more of a comment. It was very hard for me initially to to grab onto that idea to examine in self-inquiry my vasanas. My reaction was, what vasanas? That was in total ignorance. <laughs> it was because I couldn't think of the vasanas necessarily. Yeah. The point I want to make is, once I got past that little hurdle, they seem to arise and come to my attention now more naturally and more spontaneously, for which I'm very grateful. Yeah, we 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 recognize more but the workings of the mind. Like people often say, oh, thoughts, thoughts just come of their own accord. We we are not thinking the thoughts, the thoughts just come. They're not coming of their own accord. The thoughts are the sprouting of our own vasanas. And mm. they come because we allow oh. us ourselves to be swayed by those vasanas. That's big, I think. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you look like you have a question about this very topic, or am I misjudging you? Marie. Yeah, and also, the, I was wondering, like, if you don't give attention to the thoughts, like, do they even exist? <laughs> yes, yes. That, that is, if you give attention to the thoughts, you're being swayed by babasanas. When you don't give attention to the thoughts, you're not being swayed by babasanas. So the thoughts automatically subside. So, how, but how to avoid giving attention to thoughts? Because everything is a thought. The only way to avoid giving attention to the thoughts is to attend to ourselves. If we just try to avoid giving attention to the thoughts, like the yogis are doing, we end up in Manolaya. So our aim is not just to bring about the, the cessation of thoughts. Like in yoga, yoga is yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. Yoga is the is is 
curbing the, or restraining or uh, the, the, the activity, the, the chittavritti, the, the mental activity. That is not the aim in Bhagavan's path. In Bhagavan's path, the aim is to know ourselves, to hold on to ourselves. By holding on to ourselves, we are thereby uh, um, restraining the chittavrittis. But if we just try to restrain the chittavrittis without holding on to ourselves, we will end up in layer. They, that's what they call nivikalpa samadhi. It's just a state like sleep. So Bhagavan said that's of no use. Uh, so we shouldn't be even concerned about not about uh, uh, controlling the thoughts. The only thing we should be concerned about is holding on to ourselves. That's why Bhagavan says in the sixth paragraph of Nana, etane uh, enengal erinomena. However many thoughts arise, so what? As and when each thought arises, if you if you vigilantly investigate to whom is this thought, it'll be clear to me. By holding on to that, by by investigating who am I, but the mind will go back to it, the, the, the thought that had risen will subside and the mind will return to its birthplace. Mm-hmm. So our soul aim, we 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 come to know about vasanas. We come to we recognize the workings of vasanas as a byproduct of following this path. But our aim is not just to understand about vasanas. Our aim is to know ourselves. So we we are not trying to investigate the vasanas. We're not trying, we're trying to investigate ourselves, the one whose vasanas they are. Mm-hmm. So the more we attend to ourselves, the less we are allowing our attention to go out towards other things. So the Vishaya Vasanas are weakening and the, the, the thoughts which attempt to rise and draw our attention outwards, but the, those thoughts are nothing but the sprouting of the Vishaya Vasanas. They, they, as Bhagavan says in the 11th paragraph, uh, we need to destroy the thoughts then and there in the very place from which they rise. That means as soon as the vasana sprouts, we hold on to self-attentiveness and thereby don't allow ourselves to be carried away by that vasana. Don't allow that vasana to, to develop into a thought. And one thought leads to another thought, leads to another thought. It's, it's, a, it, 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 it's a chain reaction. So we need to nip it in the bud by holding on to self-attention. Mm. So this... This questioning, like for whom are the thoughts, is really yeah. key. Yeah, but except it, but it's not questioning. It, Bhagavan yeah, said yeah. investigating. It, I mean, it may be helpful sometimes to question, but that it, merely questioning is not the investigation. What Bhagavan means when he says investigate to whom means we should turn our attention back to ourselves, for one to whom all these other things appear. But uh, to to me, like investigate, like I w- when I try to do it, it's sort of like asking the question internally and like trying to search or like yeah I, I yeah. don't know how to even explain yeah, yeah. it just like yeah yeah but it, it, we can say we are we are we are questioning ourselves metaphorically. We're not literally questioning ourselves because if we. <laughs> I mean, there's no harm in asking the question occasionally, but we shouldn't take the asking of the question to be the investigation. The investigation means turning the attention back towards ourselves. 
Yes. So investigating yes. to whom the thoughts appear means turning our attention away from the thoughts back towards ourselves, the one to whom the thoughts appear. Yes. Yes, I, I sort of do a sort of, like, who is this I and trying, or like, trying to see what it means inside or like it's yeah. it's kind of a search like yeah it is it is it's a not kind that of you search. don't find anything but it's it's uh it's a, it's a search but it's not a search for anything other than ourselves it's a search for ourselves search for, mm -hmm. we are searching to ex we're trying to be aware of ourselves as we actually are we're always aware of ourselves. We're always aware I am. But now this awareness I am is mixed and conflated with the awareness of a person. We now take mm -hmm. ourselves to be I am Marie, I am Michael, I am whoever. So we are trying to, searching for ourselves means we are trying to separate ourselves, our being as I am, our fundamental awareness I am from all other things. And how we separate it is by holding on to it. Because other things are not holding on to us. We are holding on to other things. So if we want to free ourselves from other things, we need to hold on to ourselves. To the extent to which we hold on to ourselves, we thereby refrain from holding on to other things. So the other things drop off and eventually we alone will remain. Mm -hmm. And if in this sort so-called search... Like I, I would say, for instance, like what does it mean like I and and yes, yes. And at some point you can maybe like objectify it and then you sort yes, of go back. Yes. That that is the this the the um the progress from manana to nidityasana is a seamless progress. That is, we we by thinking deeply about Bhagavan's teachings. By thinking, what is what what is this I that Bhagavan is talking about? That itself puts us into the practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the, the the manana, the thinking deeply about this subject. If, if we're doing it correctly, it will automatically lead us to the actual practice, which is attending to ourselves. But for all I know, I'm like completely mistaken like there's no goalpost like well there is we we are but, but there's one goalpost that is i am that our own being that that's the one thing which is clearer than any other thing so we so long as we are moving in that direction we are we are none of us are doing this self-investigation perfectly if we did it perfectly for one second it would be mm -hmm. finished so we our, our our practices but our practices gradually refining gradually we're getting we're going deeper we're turning whereas we, at first we may be turning just 10 degrees or 20 degrees towards ourselves slowly slowly as we progress further we're able to turn further we're able to turn 60 degrees 90 degrees 120 degrees but the, the, it is not perfect self-investigation until we turn 180 degrees as soon as we turn 180 degrees for one one moment of 180 degree turn that's the end of it ego is is finished because as soon when we turning 180 degrees means being aware of ourselves alone and not being aware of anything else so we we turn towards ourselves uh to such an extent that we cease to be aware of anything else 
when we're aware of ourself alone, we're aware of ourself as pure awareness. But as soon as we're aware of ourself as pure awareness, ego is thereby destroyed. Because ego is the not pure awareness, it's the the pure awareness mixed and completed with adjunct. So ego is the impure awareness. I am Marie, or I am Michael, or I am Ted, or I am whoever. Mm -hmm. Quick question about this too. Yes. Uh, this dawns on me. Um, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other, but it does seem to fly in the face of modern psychotherapy, let's say. Michael Tennant um, <laughs> to dwell less on the past and live in the present, live in the moment. I mean, it's so popular. It seems to be what you see everywhere yes. without examining past history, which uh, supposedly won't solve anything but lead to more problems. Vasana, looking at Vasanas is just the opposite, though, the way you're explaining but, it. But we're not to look at Vasanas. We're to look at ourselves. By okay. looking at ourselves, we come to we come to be aware of the Vasanas because the Vasanas are constantly pulling us away from ourselves. But we are not our aim is not to look at the Vasanas. And about being in the present moment, Bhagavan also recommends that we attend to the present. But what Bhagavan means by the present is something far deeper than what these people mean. Because generally what people so long as we are attending to anything other than ourselves, we are not in the present because all phenomena appear in the flow of time. So we, we are in the flow of time. We're not in the precise present moment. In the precise present moment, nothing can happen because in order, the precise present moment has no duration. That is, the present moment is that infinitesimally fine interface between the past and the future. A, a, a moment ahead is future. A moment before is past. So when you, when you come to the precise present moment, it has no duration. Without duration, nothing can happen. All things that happen, all change, all thoughts, all, all perceptions, everything that is happening, all doing, happens in the flow of time in the flow from past to future. So if you take being in the present means attending to what, what is happening now, attending to your thoughts, attending to your breath, attending to your, the actions you're doing. That's what many people mean by present. They're still in the flow of time. To come to the precise present moment, we need to attend to ourselves, Because we alone, are, why... Why is the present moment? Why is now the present moment? Why is here the present place? What is it that makes this, this moment in time and this point in space present? It is the presence of ourself. Because we are present at this moment and at this, um, in this place, this moment and this place appear to be the present. So here and now, here and now is the place where we are, the time where we are. Um, so the, we can we can find the precise present moment only by attending to ourselves, because the precise present moment, in the precise present moment, nothing is happening, nothing is being done. There's only being, and that being which makes the present appear present is our own being. So it's only by holding on to our own being that we can be truly in the present moment, and that is our aim. 
So all this, the power of now and this type of um, the Buddhist type of uh, Vipassana meditation trying to be in the present, all these may have some sort of therapeutic effect. It may be have, have some limited benefit, but this isn't really being in the present. Really being in the present is just being, not doing anything, not attending to anything other than ourselves. That is, to the extent to which we are self-attentive, to that extent are we truly being in the present. Um, um, uh, I have a question, Michael. Yes. Michael, um, I strongly disagree with what you're saying because, okay. <laughs> uh, because when we truly understand, we know that we are always in the present moment. There is nothing other than the present moment. And it, all we are, all that is needed is to recognize that and then allow. Just surrender, surrender to the, the recognition that that is all there is and allow grace to have its way in whatever, however it might uh, appear. And so I, I, I don't see that, there, that we need to be struggling. The, the, the advice that, that you are giving us here is really it it it's like chasing our tail around and around and around and around and there's no way out of it the, but the way out is very very clear the way out is to recognize right here right now that there is nothing other than the present moment anything that looks like past or future is uh, is an, an expression of mind, and that's okay too. Mind can be itself. Mind is not other than the infinite. There is nothing other than the infinite, and and we can very gracefully and sweetly allow mind to be itself. We can we can notice the mind and say hello. Nice to see you, um, but I know that that is not all there is. Uh, mind is a limited expression of the infinite. And in recognizing that and recognizing that the now is all there is, there is immediate freedom, absolute freedom. So, so, so long as there is mind, there is not freedom. I, I because, completely disagree. That's because, that's good. That's <laughs> well. That's all right, We will agree you, to disagree. You say that what exists is only the present. I agree. What exists is only the present. But what is it that is present? It is we who are present. So we alone are what exists. So it, long it, as there is mind, it, it is, there is it the is awareness. awareness of multiplicity. It is There's awareness a, being. Itself, and to not forget that there is Ananda, there is Sat Chit Ananda, there is the enjoyment, um, the beingness, Sat beingness, and uh, uh, um, uh, the awareness that is its it's uh the, the you might say the other side of the coin of of the, of the reality of awareness being 
It takes joy in expressing in infinite expression, infinite individuation. It is absolute joy to have experience for the world and, and all of its expressions to appear. Uh, why would I want to, why would I want to fight against uh, uh, the the infinite having its way with me by by presenting experience, all that I feel I need to know or, or and recognize is that what is appearing as experience is the infinite in infinite individuation. That's all that I need to do. It's like I I, I can I can be fully in love. Ananda, fully in love with Sat Chit expressing in infinite individuation. Sat Chit is what shines as I am. What shines as all this multiplicity, this is just a mental fabrication. Oh, I disagree. No, no, Michael. Remember that the mental... I'd like to add my two cents worth here too because... The the mental fabrication... The mental fabrication is the infinite using the mind to express itself. The mind is a wonderful vehicle for for Satchit to express itself. I I, I don't have to... Okay, that's okay. We can can agree to to disagree. We, all of us here... uh, And and your disagreement comes with great force uh, several times which I think is worthy of being addressed by a variety of people, not just Michael, but I've heard you express this same thought before, Melissa, and it runs somewhat contrary to my understanding of what's possible when I look at my own self-inquiry practice. When I live in the now, it's not new to me, it's even before Eckhart Tolle started to talk about it with his writings, I was aware of the pursuit of and the gain of what comes with living in the now. It sounds perfect. You described it in a way that makes it sound seem perfect. When I live in the now, though, at least for me, and I suspect the truth might be the same for others, there is an unaddressed cloud residing over me living in the now. <laughs> that cloud limits my bliss, let's say, even if I get to bliss. That unaddressed cloud asks for examination for me. I'm using my own layman terms. I'm sure you can quibble with them. Anybody can, but it's how I see it. And it's that unaddressed cloud of vasanas, (laughs) as I hear Michael explaining it, that merits consideration. If, If I want my moment of happiness, you know, when somebody's pinching me real hard and then they stop pinching me, I feel great in the moment because the pinching has stopped. The same is not applicable for living in the now for me because I am acutely aware of 77 years plus of vasanas in my presence, whether they're over my head as a cloud or in the recesses of my mind. And for me anyway, um, it's the living in the present coupled with the recognition of my vasanas which are helping me more currently than ever before. I'll yield the floor to to Michael or anybody else who wants to comment on this. Okay, but what is living in the present? What is present? (laughs) Right. 
things seem to be present because we are present. All these, our present experience, all these things that we are experiencing, what makes these, this, that is, we've got memories of the past, we've got anticipations of the future, but what we're experiencing now, this is present. Even our memories and, and anticipations are also present. So what we're experiencing now, that is what seems to be present. But what is it that makes this seem to be present? It is the presence of ourself. So truly being in the present means being in ourself because we alone but, but are Michael, actually Michael, present. Michael, how, how could we be anywhere else but in ourselves? There of is course, nowhere of else course to we, even be. Of course. There's no of, other... There's of course, nowhere else to be. Of course, we are always in ourselves, but we seem to be outside. Our minds no, seem to be going outside. See, there seems to be all this multiplicity. I don't seem that. Uh, are, well, are you, know, you Michael? Maybe Lewis, please let him speak. Okay. Are, oh, are okay. you one or many? Uh, I I am uh, um, awareness being. I, I, Is awareness I one or many? Uh, it is. It, it is one that is appearing as many. Oh, that, is right. the, that, is the, that is the ananda. That so, is the part of, of the one that, uh, um, in which it takes joy in appearing in the, as the infinite, not just the many, but the infinite. The one is at the same time one and infinite. Yes, it's an it's an amazing paradox. Yes, I I agree. I I I, I can't fully uh, comprehend how in uh, you know the, you know I guess we, we call it um, uh, Maya perhaps, but I prefer to think of it as that it is the Ananda. It is the it is the 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 joy that the one that the one expresses as the infinite but, but it, it, it and it and it is it is a um it's a it's an, an unfathomable pa paradox but i'm perfectly uh, at ease with that paradox i'm perfectly comfortable with it allowing it to show me uh, uh increasingly unfolding and showing me its fullness True Ananda exists only in the state of oneness. In the state of multiplicity, there is pairs of opposites. You have pleasure, you have pain. You have happiness, you have misery. All these pairs of opposites come with multiplicity. When, when we rise as mind, we experience a dissatisfaction because our own real nature is infinite happiness. When we limit ourselves as I am this person, I am Melissa, I am Michael, I am Ted, I am whoever, we are, we are limiting, that is the infinite is always infinite, but we seem to be limited. And because we seem to be limited, we are not we seem to be not experiencing the infinite happiness that we actually are. So we are but, dissatisfied. Michael, I disagree. So dissatisfaction I disagree. is the very nature of the mind. Michael, but the, 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 the happiness is, is increasingly is present continually. Uh, I, 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 Do you I not experience misery? Do you not see misery around you in the world? No, I don't. I see the well, infinite expressing... <laughs> 
I see the infinite expressing in, in infinite variety. And I am, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just in, in awe. It, it, it's, it's, it takes infinite uh, um, forms. And I, I just, uh, you know, I, I allow it to show me the infinite wisdom in its many forms, however, however that might be, okay. I, I have full, I have full, you know, faith and and uh, I, I surrender completely to the 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 infinite's infinite wisdom in expressing in its infinite variety and and allowing all that to to unfold as it will. If I may speak, yes. Go ahead. Um, it sounds like someone, when they're in a good place, it's like saying, I'm not afraid to die when we're not faced with death. If we're faced with death and we can feel, I'm not afraid to die, then that's real. But otherwise, it's conceptual. It's projecting into the future, when I get there, then I will feel this. But reality well, Ron, is I'm, not in the future. Uh -huh. Well, I, I'm not at, at this very moment, I'm not projecting in the, in the future. I'm just experiencing the, the infinite now, right now. I, I don't know what will be in the future. I yeah, but don't what know about, what will what be about, one minute from now. What about if suddenly you were struck by, by lightning and, and, <laughs> and there's yes. a serious injury i mean will this then will this i this, i cannot will speculate this, will this will this view will it hold up under all well, circumstances Ron, are Ron, you that beyond, remains no wait let me finish are okay, you sure. beyond every possible circumstance i of course i can't possibly answer that because i don't know what the future holds i only know that right now there is only the right now and if i if i know the infinite right now and it is right now and right now and right now in every moment it's right now that's all i can that's all i can do so that's i can i can, I can just uh, just hope that this lasts for you. Okay. This All right. lasts for eternity. Well, I, I, I don't, uh, again, I don't know that there is such a thing as lasting because there is only the right now. So all I can speak about is the right now. And, 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 and right now, knowing that it, it is awareness being in the, the one infinite in infinite manifestation. And that's all I can do. I can't. I can't talk about what will last or what won't last. It's because it's right now. I think Rod brings a real good point, though, Melissa, and and you answered it. Uh, he asked if uh, if you ever feel suffering or if you're uh, in yourself or in others around you. And at the moment, you don't because you feel. Um. No. Well, I do feel. I do. I do. I have a body. I mean, or there is body here. I do have sensation. And that, yes, there are times, of course, uh, I mean, uh, uh, pain arises, pleasure arises, because, you know, that is the nature of a body. 
so so I I do experience that I do I do have that experience but even in the midst of that experience I am able to know that experience is arising in infinite awareness Right. I heard you say that about okay. yourself as well as about others, because that was his direct question to you. Okay. Uh, so the suffering, the apparent suffering of others didn't uh, doesn't seem to bother you in a way that I understand, because I relate to that myself now, too. I made the mistake of relating to it when it comes closer to me. In other words, it happened just two nights ago. My seven-year-old nephew, uh, who's got these three viruses, uh, RSV, I think is one of them, um, because of what's going on in Portland, where there's a spike in everything going on affecting young infants. He uh, was in the operating room, uh, emergency room first, then the operating room, on the throes of going into surgery for what was expected to be a case of meningitis. Only at the last second, this is after hours, did they detour and say, we don't, we no longer think it's meningitis. Well, I'm listening as a parent, as a grandparent, and I'm finding that a lot of my training to be in tranquility and see life as it, as I want it to be, an illusion. There's no suffering. There's no pain. I felt myself filled with compassion, filled with suffering, and filled with uh, uncertainty about what was going on with my beloved seven-month-old grandson. And the answer to me comes in what you your premise, uh, which I think is a real good one, Melissa, was about living in the now that brings you Ananda. Uh, and 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 bliss. When I'm living in the now, the difference, I guess, between you and me is I find myself living in the garden which I cultivated. My 77-year-old garden is filled with beautiful flowers and weeds and thorns and a lack of tending to it to the point where other weeds are growing up and choking out some of the beautiful flowers. It is an imperfect garden being made more perfect but my my understanding to and my growth and what I hear Michael talking about, I think that's maybe the best way I could put it for myself. I may be alone in experiencing things that way. Michael, you've heard a lot in the last five minutes. <laughs> yes. Um, I think perhaps it would be useful to continue with um, what Bhagavan said in this paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, do, shall, shall I continue? Yes, please do. Yeah. Um, so after saying uh, the, the previous sentence we talked about was the one where Bhagavan says, when the mind is under the sway of subhavasanas, it is said to be a good mind. And when it is under the sway of asubhavasanas, a bad mind. Then in the next sentence, he says, however bad other people may appear to be, disliking them is not proper or not appropriate. So uh, that is after saying that, that what makes a person appear good or bad is the vasanas. So however bad a person may appear to be, disliking them is not appropriate. It's just that if a person appears very bad, it is that they are under the sway of bad vasanas. But we shouldn't dislike them. We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't have dislike for people, however bad they may appear to be. And then he goes on to say in the next sentence, virupu verupugal irendum verukatakana. That means likes and dislikes are both fit to dislike. In other words, we should what we should dislike is having likes and dislikes. We should neither like nor dislike. We need to go beyond likes and dislikes. 
Um, and then he, 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 in the next sentence, he says, Ripanja Vishayangalil Adikamai Manate Bidakodadu. It is not appropriate to let one's mind dwell excessively on worldly matters. Um, I think the reason for that is obvious. That is, uh, the more we allow our mind to go outwards, the more we we are going away from ourselves, and we are we are dwelling on things other than ourselves. So, uh, if we are following this path, we need to be cultivating the 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 inclination to go within more and more and more, and therefore to lose the. To to give up the inclination to go outwards and dwell on worldly matters. A um, quick question, Michael. Yes. So, um, uh, in 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 maybe the last oh a year or so, I've I've been trying to pay really close attention to uh, particular words that that uh, Bhagwan used in in various writings, and and mm. we've. Our, our group has been reading uh, something that is, uh, I think, a really good um, uh, um, uh, translation of exactly his words on, on you know, in a number of dialogues. And, and just now, the one that you read, I, uh, I noticed, again, a particular word that I think he, he purposefully left that in. He said, as you just, what you just said, um, is it, to not uh, uh, allow ourselves to be noticing uh, or paying excessive attention to worldly matters. Yes. If if he if he did not uh, uh, if he did not mean uh, for us to if he if he meant for us to not pay att any attention to the world at all. If that were possible, if, if he meant that, he would have not put excessive as the word there. He would have just said, don't pay any attention to the world. But I don't think that's what he meant. I think he was purposefully, uh, you know, uh, indicating to us that the, the, the world as it arises, the, the, uh, the, you know, the appearance that of, that of experience that arises in the world, we it, it is there to notice. We it, it's there to uh, that's where we are presently uh, interacting, and it's not that we turn completely away from it, but we come to know it as what it really is. But we still uh, we still live. Uh, apparently, you know, the, the body at least lives in the world. And I know that, that he, he carefully advised people, you know, when they asked him, should they give up their, give up their families or give up their work or, you know, give up their, their life as a householder. And he very clearly advised them, no, 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 no. Continue to do, you know, what, whatever your prarabdha uh, has brought you know, into your experience, but increasingly know what you really are. So uh, all I'm trying to say is that that particular word right there, excessive, I think is a key 
a, a, a very important word there. Yes. And he, he, and he chose it that way. Yes. He, that is, the word he uses is adikamai. That means excessively. It is a significant word here, but we have to remember that excessively, it is a relative term. So what may appear to be excessive in one context may not be excessive in another context. So as we go deeper and deeper in the spiritual path, we come to understand more and more clearly that whatever is happening in the world is there is a higher power that is driving the world, what, what, everything that is happening in the world. For example, as, ah, yes. as Bhagavan says in the 13th paragraph, he says, um, he says, uh, uh, um, so that's perfect, Michael. Yes. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, and and that, I think that answers Ted's comment as well that as we as we come to have, have a deeper and deeper understanding of what of what what everything that is arising as experience is the infinite appearing in infinite manifestation that that then even though something may uh, you know a, 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 a quote-unquote painful experience may arise even in that experience we know that it is the infinite uh, showing an infinite variety and that the more that we know it as such something grace will will show us some way to move through that experience and and be able to you know to fulfill whatever it is that we are meant to fulfill this reminds me of the old uh, comment about the dream that we are living. Uh, don't pay attention to, I forgot the word you used, uh, uh, Michael. Don't pay attention to the excessive differences. Perhaps that was the word in the world. Uh, I realize I'm in the world. This is Ted speaking as Ted, not as the I am. And Ted as Ted is the illusory mind-body entity that's trying to see beyond the idea of the world. I see the world as the dream. I'm part of the dream. And as somebody once told me, but Ted, the dream is real. The dream is real. And Melissa, some of the, some of the comments you've made in the past echo that without using those same words. My response to that is, and actually it's my wife who first came up with it, and I thought it felt like genius. Yes, the dream is real but it's still a dream. <laughs> but I don't think the dream, the dream is real. not real. But I'm in the dream. Let me just finish. But no. I'm in the dream. I see myself in the dream. That's the small S self, illusory mind, body, Ted, speaking with conviction. Uh, yeah, I'm here on this Sunday celebrating a, a robust conversation about Ramana's teachings. And I'm constantly reminding myself that the joy, the gift, the upliftment that comes from self-inquiry is seeing the dream diminish. Oh, but, but, but Ted, I, I'm not saying that a dream is real of any sort, whether it be our waking dream or our sleeping dream. The, a dream anything that arises and passes by the, by the true definition of real, real has no beginning and no end. Uh, uh, real is uh, is changeless. 
so, right. uh, so, so in that sense, there is no no dream is is it real in that sense. But we can always be remembering that what is real is the awareness being in which the dream is arising. You're so, so that's the, the so so, so that's. That's the only thing that is ever real is the awareness being that is that is aware of the dream arising, and, and that's always present. Asked, who's who's who is the one who's aware? Where is who is the one who's aware of, the, of this dream that we're talking? It, it's about? it's all the infinite that's aware, and that and we are an individuation of the infinite. It is only the infinite that that is aware, because uh, awareness is an infinite mystery. See, I don't even qualify it by saying we are an individuation of the infinite. We are the infinite. We are awareness. I mean, that's okay. Uh, all right, good. Everything else. There is you go. And everything Perfect. else. But according to Bhagavan, the awareness that knows the world is not the infinite awareness. The, consider verse 4 of Uludhunapadu. What Bhagavan says in verse 4 of Uludhunapadu is, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? So it's only when we limit ourselves as the form of this body that we are aware of this multiplicity of forms. When uh, we uh, do not I experience ourselves as a form as the form of this body, when we experience ourselves as the real awareness, the infinite awareness, we are aware of nothing other than infinity. No, uh, uh, yes, that's a, yes, but but the infinity is taking infinite infinite uh, expression. So, but expressions are all finite. So you're saying you you've got infinite, it, infinite finite things. It is. Uh, it's. It's an appearance. An appearance. Just the like appearance. It, yes, it's an appearance. Yes, that means it is not real. But as so long what as we, is real? The real awareness is not the awareness that knows all this. The real awareness is the awareness that is aware of nothing other than itself. Oh, that, that's a little, that, you know, that maybe that's where there, we have, this I think is the crux of the difference in our, under, in our interpretation and our understanding. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, I recognize that the, the, the awareness is, there's only one awareness, the infinite awareness. And it, just like the wave on the ocean, it can, the, the wave is never other than the ocean. So the awareness that is aware of experience is not other than the infinite awareness, but it chooses it freely out of its infinite freedom, chooses to, 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 to appear as experience. It, it's, it's an infinite miracle. It, it's truly a celebration. I think we ought to leave Michael uh, to continue. I mean, okay. this is Ramana Maharshi group. <laughs> this is Ramana Maharshi's teachings. And I, I'm all for people having uh, robust uh, conversations and even disagreements. But we're taking a lot of time with okay. the disagreement portion when we're really about Ramana or we wouldn't be here. Uh, but thank you. Um, I, I will I will be silent the rest of, of this session, but I think that finally, uh, that is the crux of the difference now. I think I see exactly where 
the difference of interpretation is arising, and um, that's that's just fine. Very Thank good. you. Okay. Thank you. I, I just wanted to, to finish talking about this point because you you singled out a, a particular word that Bhagavan used excessively. We need to, when we read Bhagavan's words, we need to think carefully. What does he mean by excessively? As you say, when he uses words, he uses them for a purpose. So that word excessively is there for a good purpose. When we start on this spiritual path, our ability to focus our attention on ourselves is limited. So our mind is automatically, when it's not attending to ourselves, it's attending to the world. So our mind is dwelling on the world. So we are trying to limit the extent to which we attend to the world by attending to ourself. So what will seem to be excessive at first is different to how it will appear as we go deeper and deeper within. The deeper we go in the practice, the more clear it becomes to us but it is not actually necessary to attend to the world at all. So for someone who has gone deeper in the spiritual practice, even a little bit of attending to the world appears excessive. This is can be very clearly understood by what Bhagavan says in the 13th paragraph. So in this, I think it's useful visiting what Bhagavan says in the um, 13th paragraph. Um, I won't talk about the first sentence first. I'll talk about the third sentence first. What Bhagavan says in the third sentence is, since one Parameshwara Shakti, that's one supreme ruling power or power of God, is driving all karyas. That karyas means whatever needs to happen or whatever ought to happen or whatever needs to be done or ought to be done. So there's one supreme power that is driving all these things. So since that is the case, instead of we also yielding to it, why to be perpetually thinking it is necessary to do like this, it is necessary to do like that. What Bhagavan means here is, the more clearly we understand that there's one power that is driving all these things, it's not necessary for us to think at all about them. Let Just like everything else is being driven by that power, we are also being driven by that power. So let us surrender ourselves completely. And then in the next sentence, he says, he gives the analogy, to illustrate this, he gives an analogy. Though we know that the train is bearing all the burdens, why should we who go traveling in it, instead of remaining happily leaving our small luggage placed on it, uh, suffer carrying it on our head. So why should we carry the luggage on our head when we're traveling on the train? Whether we're luggages on our head or on the seat beside us, the train is carrying it. So it's not necessary to carry it on our head. So the Bhagavan's final conclusion is it is not necessary to carry the luggage at all. He may say at first to someone who's very attached to their luggage, he may say, don't hold the luggage excessively on your head. When you're tired, place it aside for a little while. And then if you want, you can put it back in your head. So he said, don't do it excessively. But as we go deeper and deeper, we understand having it on our head at all is excessive. So we put it aside and we don't think about it again. This is made clear from the first sentence. In the first sentence, Bhagavan makes it clear, but we need not think of anything else if we surrender ourselves to God. What he says in the first sentence of this paragraph is, being Upmanishtaparan, 
Atmanishtapara means one who is firmly uh, fixed as oneself, one, one who is firmly established as oneself. In other words, being as we actually are, giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any thought except thought of oneself. In other words, except self-attentiveness alone is giving oneself to God. So here Bhagavan says, all the only thing we need to think about is ourselves. In other words, we need to attend to ourselves. We need not think about anything else whatsoever. So for someone who is who has who is advanced in this practice, who is trying their best to hold on to self-attentiveness and thereby give themselves entirely to God, even the slightest thought, even giving even the slightest room to rising of any other thought is excessive. So when Bhagavan uses this word excessive, we need to think about it and understand what he means by that. What, for, 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 if, we, if we're going deep in this practice, even a little bit of thought about the world is excessive. For someone who's just starting on this path, they, they can't, we can't expect when we start on this path that we completely give up thought about the world and hold on to self-attentiveness. We don't, simply don't have the, the love to do so. But as our love deepens, as we go deeper in this path, our love to attend to ourselves grows stronger and stronger. And then even a, the slightest thought about the world is excessive. So, excessive is a relative term we need to understand it in the context in which it's used so what is excessive for one person may seem quite quite reasonable for another person oh i've got a family i've got to take care of my family i've got work to do i've got of course i've got to dwell on the world fine but one will say attend to the world do what you need to do but at least try a little bit to be self-attentive and the more, but the more we try to be self-attentive, the more we will feel that even a little bit of attending to the world is excessive. But thank you for raising that point, Melissa. That's a good point to raise because it, it's important to think carefully about every word that Bhagavan uses and why he uses those words. Um, then no. in the next sentence, he says... To the extent possible, it is not appropriate to intrude in others' affairs. In other words, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be seeking to interfere in other people's business. Our, our business, what the, the work for which we've come to this world, is to attend to ourselves and thereby surrender ourselves to God. We other people, we shouldn't in if someone comes to us for help, if someone says, I may have this problem, can you advise me or can you help me? By all means, help them. But we shouldn't of our own accord go intruding in other people's affairs. Um, and then in the last two sentences, Bhagavan says, in the, um, in the second last sentence, he says, all that one gives to others, one is giving only to oneself. And then he concludes by saying, if one knew this truth, who indeed would remain without giving? So that is the reason we, we, we may hesitate to give to others is because we see, we see a difference between ourselves and others. The deeper we go in this practice of self-investigation, the less real this distinction between ourselves and others will appear. So the clearer it will become to us that whatever is given to others is given only to oneself. 
people sometimes ask about this sentence. Is Bhagavan here talking about only the good things we give to others, or does he also mean the bad things? Well, in this context, because he says in the next sentence, if one knew this truth, who indeed would remain without giving? That implies that he's talking about the good things we give to others, helping others, being kind to others, um, offering uh, kind words or consolation or helping them in whatever way is appropriate. Doing anything good for others, it's good. It, it, by doing good to others, we are doing good to ourselves. That is the implication because he says, if one knew this truth, who indeed would remain without giving? But it is also true that whatever bad things we give to others, we are giving to ourselves. If we do, if we are unkind to someone, we we are being unkind to ourselves. If we if we are mean or selfish, we are we are being mean and selfish to ourselves because ultimately, what we see as the world is just a reflection of ourselves. But what appear to be others are actually nothing but ourselves. So the more we 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 treat others as we would ourselves want to be treated, the better it is for ourselves. Because by by being kind to others, by being considerate to others, by helping others, we are purifying our own mind and thereby helping our own spiritual progress. That is the implication here. So I've come to the end of this paragraph. So if there's anything else that anyone would like to ask, that that I'll just say one general comment that in this paragraph, Bhagavan is indicating to us uh, how we should live in the world, how we should regard, how we should look upon the world. There, in this world, there are all sorts of people. There are good people, there are bad people. We should understand that those. If someone appears to be good, it's because they're under the sway of good vasanas. If they appear to be bad, it's because they're under the sway of bad vasanas. But ultimately, what we see as others are only ourselves. So we shouldn't dislike them just because they seem to be under the sway of, of, of bad vasanas. We should look upon all others as we look upon ourselves. We don't want to suffer in this world. We shouldn't want others to suffer. So if we just like we try to alleviate our own suffering when if we are, for example, if we are hungry, we want food. If we are cold, we want warm clothing or a, a, a warm house to be a warm shelter to be in. We should treat others in exactly the same way. We should try to treat others as we treat ourselves. This is how we should live our life in the world. But we shouldn't be dwelling excessively upon the, the world. Our main aim is to be turning our attention within to know what we actually are. Because if we're dreaming, as Bhagavan said in the previous paragraph, he says everything is just a dream. So uh, since all this is just a dream, what is the greatest good we can do to all the others in the world? If, if we see suffering in a dream, how can we, what's the best, most effective way to alleviate all the suffering that we see in a dream? wake up from a dream. So our primary aim in this life should be attending to ourselves, knowing what we actually are, and thereby waking up from this dream. But so long as we're dreaming, we should treat others with the same kindness and consideration that we treat ourselves. We, we, that is, we, we take ourselves to be this person, so we have so much care and concern about this person we seem to be. We should be equally caring and concerned about other people. But 
that's not our principal aim. We shouldn't be dwelling on these things excessively. If someone comes to us and is in need of some help, we give them whatever help we can. But the, the primary aim of our life is to wake up from this dream. And we can wake up from this dream only by turning our attention within to know what we ourselves actually are. Excellent. Excellent. Let's go. I know we have some uh, questions that we sent to you, but let's take a moment to go around and see if anybody from, let's see, Maria to Ganesh, uh, there's eight of us here, Sankari. If anybody has a follow-up question or a comment, anything that you've talked about, uh, and I'll just pause for a second to see if anybody wants to raise their hand or speak up. Okay. And the last comment I wanted to make on this was, if I heard you correctly, Michael, uh, these are my words, not yours. Self-inquiry is a graduated procedure. I guess everything you could say is a graduated procedure. Yeah. If you want to become a bricklayer, you're not going to learn it in one day. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it really helps me overcome my issues that come up from day to day or week to week. I just now tell myself, give it a little time, see if it self-resolves. And sure enough, it does. And the greatest example I can think of is understanding much better than I ever have before in my life, the reason to look at vasanas. <laughs> and uh, that now, as I suggested, is maybe the largest part of my self-inquiry. Um, let's see, when Sakari, you made yourself visible, does that mean you have a question or a comment that you want to add to this? Not yet, I'm good. Thank you. Okay. Um, and what's and the... the age-old question that I have people ask of me is what you just addressed also. What is the best we can do within the dream, which helps us with any flavor or any topic of any issue that pops up in our awareness? The answer is to wake up from yes. the dream. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and I might ask you, Michael, do you see indications that more and more individuals are awakening from the dream? In a dream, if we see people waking from a dream, the dream continues so long as we are dreaming. We shouldn't be concerned about others because the others are part of the dream. We, that is, who is dreaming? It is not, the, no person in the dream is dreaming. Now we are aware of ourselves as I am Ted or I am Michael. But the dreamer is not Ted or Michael. The dreamer is ego, the I that is aware of itself as I am Ted. Yeah. So if that I oh, that is aware of itself as I am Ted, if that wakes up, the problem is solved. Very good. Let's <laughs> go to the questions. I think I sent them to you. We'll take them. Yes. Uh, maybe it's the oldest question first, because we have yes. some that time never allowed us to get to. Go ahead. Um, I think the oldest one is the October the 2nd one. Yeah. Uh, from David Roberts. In the opening of Nana, Bhagavan says, love itself is the actual form of God. Um, okay, that's a quotation from letters from Sri Ramanashan. Michael, could you talk a little about the place of love in Bhagavan's teachings? Would Ramana say that love and, the sol and self are one and the same? If so, why wouldn't he invite us to investigate love rather than self? Yes, love is our real nature. Love is what we actually are. But um, so 
by investigating who am I, by investigating what we are, we are investigating what what love is. Um, but if we take love to be something other than ourselves, then investigating such love is not investigating ourselves. So the the direct way is to investigate what we ourselves actually are. Because we are love, if we know ourselves, we will know what love is. Without knowing ourselves, we cannot know what love is. So because generally when we when we talk about love, we talk about it as if it were something other than ourselves. Um it, love is something that we feel sometimes and don't feel at other times. Sometimes we're in love, sometimes we're not in love. The way we use the term love, we take it to be as if it's something other than ourselves. But actually, love is our own real nature. Um, Bhagavan doesn't actually say in the opening of Nana, love itself is the actual form of God. Um, there is a what he says in 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 the first paragraph of Nana is um, is uh, I'll just quickly read the meaning of it. Since all sentient beings want to be happy, uh, want to be always happy without what is called misery, since for everyone the greatest love is only for oneself. This is the only mention, or oh, twice he mentioned, then in the next clause he says, since happiness alone is the cause for love, in order to obtain that happiness, which is one's own nature, which one experiences daily in, in sleep, that means dreamless sleep, which is devoid of mind, oneself knowing oneself is necessary. For that uh, jnana vichara, awareness investigation, called who am I, alone is the principal means. So what Bhagavan says here is that for all of us, we have the greatest love only for ourselves. And the cause for love is only happiness. That is, we love only those things that we believe will contribute to our happiness. So if if we think, if we think that Happiness lies in um in uh in, in say um watching football. We will like to watch we 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 will we will love to watch football because that's where we think happiness lies. Or if we think happiness lies in um amassing uh, vast amounts of wealth, we will love to amass, amass vast amounts of wealth. If we think happiness lies in being very learned we will want to amass a huge amount of learning. So we we naturally love where whatever we think is happy, wherever we think happiness lies, we love that. Since we all have more than we love any other thing, we love ourselves. So what does that indicate? That indicates that happiness is our real nature. And and because happiness is the cause of love, it also indirectly implies that ha love is our real nature. So he, he doesn't explicitly say love is our real nature, but he does imply it in this first paragraph. Um, but I think that actual quotation, love itself is the actual form of God, that seems to be a letter from, uh, a quotation from letters from Sri Ramanashram, letter 179. Bhagavan made it very, very clear in so many places in Akshramlai. He um he refers to Arunachala as well, 
I can think of two places where he directly says, Arunachali is Amburu. Amburu means the form of love. That it means, that implies Arunachali is the very embodiment of love. Um, in one verse, in verse um, 101 of Akshramlai, he sings, Ambu Vilalipol, Amburu Vunilene, Ambai Karetaral Arunachala. That means, like ice in water, melt me as love in you, the form of love. Um, so uh, there he's saying, Arunachala is the form of love. We are like ice. We are like uh, the word in, in Tamil can mean ice or it can mean snow or, or uh, what will easily dissolve in the ocean. So we, the prayer is to dissolve, since, since Arunachala is the very, Arunachala means God, is the very form of love. In order, and since Arunachala is our own real nature, our real nature is love. So, as ego, we seem to be like a like a ice. We seem to be something frozen and hard. So uh, the prayer is to melt us in, as love in in uh, in Arunachala, who is the form of love. Even the ice is nothing but water. It seems to be something other than water because of its solidified condition. So we seem to be something other than, than infinite love because we've limited ourselves with this person by rising as ego. So melt me as love means restore to me my real nature, which is infinite love, by melting me in you. Uh, so that's one place where Bhagavan clearly indicates that love is the actual form of God. And also in um, the second verse of Arunachala Patikam, he begins with the words, Amburu Varunachala. That means Arunachala, the very form of love. So, yes, this is definitely Bhagavan's teaching. Love is the actual form of God. It is also the actual form of ourself. It's our real nature. We, The reason we seem to be our love seems to be deficient is because we have limited ourselves by rising as ego. By rising as ego, we seem to become finite. We seem to be a finite person. So we cannot experience the infinite happiness and infinite love that we actually are. To experience the infinite happiness and infinite love that we actually are, we need to know ourselves. And for that, as Bhagavan says in this first paragraph of Nana, Investigate the uh, uh, investigation of awareness, jnana vichara, who am I, is the principal means. And is ego always with us, or as people become aware of their infinite love in their practice and in their thoughts and in their desire for being, does ego dissipate to nothing? You say people. But it's not wow. people who are aware. It is ego okay. that is aware. Yeah. Because Ted is not aware of anything. It is ego who is aware of itself as I am Ted, but is aware of it. So so long as we're aware of ourselves as a person, ego is not yet dissolved. But the deeper we go in this path, the closer we come to the uh, final dissolution of ego. That is, the more ego subsides, the closer it comes to its own dissolution. When it dissolves, then only infinite love, infinite happiness remains. As Bhagavan says in the um, 
in the 28th uh, verse of Upadesha Undia, if one knows what the real nature of oneself is, then anadi, ananta, akanda, satchidananda. Anadi means beginningless. It's eternal. It's, it, it, it has no beginning, no end. Uh, ananta, ananta can be taken to mean endless, but ananta means end, but it also means limitless, infinite. So it's eternal, it's infinite, it's akanda, it's undivided. It's not all, so long as we see multiplicity, we see so many divisions, but Satchitananda is undivided. It's one infinite, indivisible whole. And its nature is Satchitananda. Sat means pure being. Chit means pure awareness. Ananda means pure happiness. And by implication, pure love. Uh, that is our real nature. That is what, what we actually are. But to know that, we must know, we need to investigate and find out who am I. When we find out who am I, ego will thereby be dissolved and we will remain as that infinite Satchitananda. But we are even now. But we are not aware of ourselves as such now because we are now we mistake ourselves to be a finite person. So it sounds like ego is possible to, to dissolve uh, to nothing, but it's an enormous challenge. It requires all-consuming love. As Bhagavan said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Without all-consuming love, because in order to dissolve ego, we must be willing to surrender ourselves. And why will we surrender ourselves? Only, only all-consuming love can motivate us to surrender ourselves. And you don't so, mean by using the term bhakti uh, to worship to something outside of self. No, but that, that, that is bhakti begins by uh, first we take God to be something other than ourselves. So we have love for God as if he were something other than ourselves, he or she or it or whatever you want to call it. Um, but as we go deeper in the path of bhakti, we come to understand who am I other than God? Who, who am I? How can I be anything other than God? If God is the infinite whole, I cannot be other than him. Because something other than the infinite, then the infinite becomes finite. So God cannot be anything other than ourself. So the, the, the love that was formally directed out, outwards towards the name or form of God as our bhakti matures, it begins to be directed inwards to God who is ever shining in our heart as ourself, as our own being, I am. You teach me and I find out every time I try to ask a question, the importance of selection of words, of making sure uh, the word is the most fitting word to help you uh, raise your point or ask your question. What about the word God itself? I mean, I know of people for whom it's quite toxic. And I'm not even sure altogether that it applies here. God, uh, is, is that a word you're still comfortable with from your childhood? Being, I think you were raised in the Anglican Church. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but, but God's a potent word. I know when my wife started A Course in Miracles back in the late 80s, God's sprinkled throughout the entire 1,200-page text. She crossed out that word and put love in its place. Because it has a lot of baggage attached to it. Yes. Well, that is what, 
what is God? God is, that is, for us, God is just an idea. Yeah. So depending on what idea we have of God, some people, God is an, an angry man with a gray beard up in, in the clouds who's going to punish us every time we do something bad. So there are so many different conceptions of God. We need to, we need to, I mean, we need to decide what we mean by the word God. From the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, God is our own real nature. God is that which is shining in our heart as our own being. I am. So since, since that is what God means for me, I'm very comfortable with this word God. Well, good. But good. I'm not comfortable with all the, I wouldn't be comfortable with all the conceptions that other people have about God. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if I were ever challenged to be asked, well, Ted, who do you believe in? What do you believe in? I don't think I would use that word God quite the same way they're perhaps used to thinking of God, good or not so good. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing we all believe in, we believe in our, in our own existence. I am. Yes. That is God. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think it's about time we start looking at ways to pull the threads together here and call it a, another wonderful two hours, Michael. Okay, uh, we still have one more question. Should we try and answer that? Sure, let's go for it. Oh, actually, we have more questions. Yeah. Let's do the one from November 6th. Okay. Um, uh, why do some people in Ramana circles sometimes talk about who the observer is? What is it that is being observed, and who is the observe? Who is observing the observer? Doesn't this emphasize duality too much? My answer would be that there is only pure awareness, and pure awareness has nothing to observe and nothing to be aware of except self. That's from anonymous. Um, now we experience ourselves as ego. Ego is the observer. That is, as ego, we're aware of so many other things. So um, that, that is, ego is the observer, and all other things are things that are observed. Um, so our aim is to observe the observer. Why do we want to observe the observer? Is the observer real? No, the observer is not real. But though the observer is not real, it contains within itself an element of reality. That is, the observer is ego. Ego is the mixed awareness. I am this person. I am, I am this body. What is real in that mixed awareness is only the pure awareness I am. So when we, so long as we are observing anything other than ourselves, we seem to be ego. But to the extent to which we turn our attention back within to observe ourselves, who now seem to be the observer, the observer thereby subsides, and the ego subsides, and what remains is pure awareness, which is the reality of the observer. So yes, so long as we're talking about uh, observer and things observed, there's duality. That's, the, that's where, we, or there's the, at least the appearance of duality. So we are now in the appearance of duality. We're aware of the subject and objects, knower and things known. Our, our aim is to know the knower, know the reality of the knower, that is. 
So to know the reality of the know, we have to turn our attention away from all things that are known back to ourselves to see who am I. Turning our attention back to ourselves, in other words, the observer observing only the observer, that is not duality, that is non-duality, because what is observing and what is observed is one and the same in that case, in the case of self-attentiveness. So this is the way to go beyond duality. And when we know ourselves as we actually are, we will know ourselves as pure awareness. And as uh, this person rightly right, uh, um, uh, observes, pure awareness has nothing to observe and nothing to be aware of except itself. That is, pure awareness does not is awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. That is what we actually are. So long as we are aware of anything other than ourselves, so long as we are aware of the appearance of multiplicity, so long as we are aware of the uh, division between the observer and the observed, we are a, we are we we see, we are aware of that because we seem to be ego. It's only in the view of ego that all this duality and multiplicity seems to exist. When we know ourselves as we actually are. We will know that we are nothing but pure awareness. Great. This is another example of uh, what I called the self-inquiry as being a graduated process procedure. It's a graduated procedure. Uh, you just made it much clearer for me when you said that the observer is the ego. The observer is the ego, but you added the words, the mixed awareness, the mixed awareness that, that I am real what is pure here is the I am it yeah. refers to. And then once you digest that, once one, once, once that's digested to select my words as carefully as possible, it's clear to see the only awareness, the pure awareness that isn't aware of anything other than self. Yeah. I, th I think I'm getting it more clearly and thank you for right. that. <laughs> Uh, and I'm glad of that question being asked, too. So we did pretty good today. <clears throat> we yes. had a robust discussion. But we still got more questions for next time. We still have more questions yeah. for next yeah. time. But we got two of them processed today. Yes. Uh, any, we're, any making, we're, we're making progress. Slowly, <laughs> slowly. There is, uh, a, there is a verse yeah. in the Gita. Uh, you were saying about it being a gradual process. There's a verse in the Gita. Uh, chapter 6, verse 25. Actually, 25 and 26, they're a pair. Bhagavan has translated those two verses into Tamil as verses 27 and 28 in Bhagavad Gita Saram. In the first of those two verses, uh, Krishna begins in, in the Sanskrit original. He begins with the words, Sane Sane. Sane Sane means slowly, slowly, gradually, gradually, gently, gently, little by little, step by step. And Bhagavan translates in Tamil as mella, mella, which means the same. So, yeah. uh, or in, uh, someone, someone quoted it in Sanskrit, uh, someone said it in Spanish a few days ago to me, poco, poco. Poco, poco. Poco, poco. So this is the approach we have to take slowly, slowly, gradually, gradually, because our mind has so much tasting going outwards. We slowly got to wean it off. It's liking to go outwards and cultivate the love to go within. That can only be done gradually, but it requires patient persistence, perseverance in order to succeed. So we need to slowly, slowly, 
but persistently we need to try to turn our attention back to ourselves. Now add another T word. You said our mind has so much tasting out there. My T word would be our mind has become so tainted uh, that slowly, slowly can that be done, undone. Yes, yes. Our mind is tainted with the taste to go outwards. <laughs> Michael, thank you very, very much. Right. I, hope, I hope this continues to be a worthwhile effort on your part. It's a huge, generous gift to us, two hours on a Sunday. It's, for me, it's always worthwhile talking about Bhagavan's teaching because it always reminds me of what I should be doing, which is turning within. Yeah, and, and I'm sorry. I want to just express a word of sorrow that I think as the facilitator, I'm certainly not a teacher, but I am a facilitator, um, to occasionally rein in contrary comments if they kind of go past a certain point, which has to be a judgment call on my part. I finally did that today, but perhaps I waited a little bit too long, for which I'm sorry. Uh, we'll Things happen as they're meant to happen. Everything happens as Bhagavan wants it to happen. 